Good morning. This morning's scripture comes from Genesis chapter 13, verses 2 through 18. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife <clears throat> excuse me. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. For we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take to the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley, <clears throat> and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You're going to discover as we walk through Genesis together, as we see the power of God, his plan of salvation for all of humanity, uh, preserved and proclaimed through the life of a individual family um, and their descendants. You're going to see, as we look at Abram and his life, that his faith, his walk of faith, his walk of spiritual maturity, uh, was very much a one step forward, two steps back, one step forward again type of a process. Yeah. And you see Abram here really growing up into his new identity, into his new calling. The New Testament authors called that sanctification. Uh, the idea that God gives you a new identity, uh, but you're still acting the same old way, and you begin to grow up and mature and change into the new identity that God has given you. And you, this, you see Abram beginning to do this. But a step forward, two steps back. Well, in Genesis chapter 13, he takes another step forward in the maturity process. And you see him growing in his faith. You see him maturing in his ability to trust this God uh, that has called him, particularly in a conflict. It was in a conflict that we begin to see Abram mature in his faith. It was a conflict with his nephew Lot. It wasn't a personal conflict. It was a material, a, a substantive conflict. As they grew in wealth, 
because we, we know that when they went down to Egypt, as horrible of a situation as that was, they left Egypt more wealthy. Uh, they have more money, more riches. They have more servants. They have more livestock. And they, they return to Canaan abundantly blessed, materialistically blessed. But the indigenous people, the Canaanites, are still living in the land of Canaan. And with the space that is left over, Abram and Lot have, have to share with all of their increasing resources. And there wasn't enough room. The land couldn't support the both of them. And so their employees, their herdsmen, began to have quarrels. And that's what, in the Hebrew, the word strife meant. It meant to quarrel. It, it meant to, um, to dispute. And so that's what begins to happen. And it was in that process that we begin to see Abram mature. Now, one thing I have discovered, maybe you have also, if material conflicts aren't handled well, they lead to personal conflicts, don't they? But we see Abram uh, take care of this situation quite well. Conflict does seem uh, to be an annoyance. Conflict in our lives uh, seems like a disturbance, like a persistent nuisance, like even a great obstacle to our otherwise well-ordered lives. Uh, Don't we have strife with our relatives as well? Don't we have strife with our neighbors and with our colleagues? One thing that is key to remember in our conflict And it's illustrated here in Genesis chapter 13 is that God is with us. That God is present even in our conflict. And our conflicts cannot undermine the truth and the promises of God. And as we unpack that statement, I want to talk to you about how Abram responded to conflict in this situation. How you respond to conflict and how God responds to it. How Abram responded, how we respond to conflict, and how does God respond to conflict? Now, Abram's response to what happened, it occurred within the context of his repentance. I don't know if you'd notice that. Again, uh, he had blundered seriously, faithlessly in Egypt, but he returns to Canaan, sobered up, and living apparently by faith again. You will notice that The opening scene and the closing scene in Genesis chapter 13 mention Abram worshiping the Lord. He returns to Canaan. He goes back to the region of Bethel up in the highlands and right back to where he was originally, to where he had built an altar many years before when he first arrived in the land of Canaan. And he called upon the name of the Lord, we're told. And at the very end of the passage, uh, he's migrated again throughout Canaan, and and now he's in a different place. He's in the Hebron area, and it says that he built an altar there. Uh, So bookends in today's scene is Abram worshiping the Lord. So he had been going through a season, I think, of repentance. doesn't talk about his faith in Egypt when you read Genesis chapter 12. But his faith in the Lord is central again in Genesis chapter 13. And I think the proof of his revitalized faith is his response to the situation with Lot. In verses 8 and 9, this is what he says to Lot. Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Some English translations just say we are brothers. We're kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? 
Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now, you may remember earlier in Abram's life, recorded in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, God had promised to Abram, to your offspring, I will give this land. So Abram already knows it's his. God's, God's already promised it to him and to his descendant. And despite his God-given right to the land, despite his social superiority as an elder to his orphaned nephew, despite all of that, he gives up his rights. And he's willing to appreciate his ne- he's willing to approach his nephew, willing to negotiate. This is not the Abram of Egypt, is it? The Abram who was deceptive, uh, the Abram who took, who plundered the Egyptians through his deception. Uh, this is an Abram who is talking plainly. This is an Abram who's giving instead of taking. Uh, he is not seeking uh, for safety. He's not worried simply about, he's not motivated about his personal safety or about his own wealth or personal gain. He seems like he's motivated by peace. We're kinsmen. We're brothers. Let's not keep doing this. Now, you may be wondering, how is this peaceful? Because they separated. Isn't that some type of a failure? The fact that they couldn't stay together? Isn't it failure rather than peacemaking? Well, no. And, and there's two reasons. Now, normally, I would say to anybody in any situation, a relationship, a friendship, uh, a partnership, a marriage, Let's do everything we can to avoid a breakup. Uh, Let's pursue reconciliation. Let's pursue restoration as much as is possible. But in certain instances, in certain instances, separation may be the right thing. And here's an example of it for two reasons. They were, Abram and Lot were in an unsustainable situation. The land and the Canaanites, their neighbors, could not support their growing resources and assets and people. There was just not enough room, so to stay together would exacerbate the problem, would make the conflict worse, and would be a terrible witness to their neighbors. Abram's been through that already. He went to Egypt, and he was a curse upon the Egyptians. You know the story, so that they begged him to leave. Now he's back in Canaan, and he does not want to be a curse upon the Canaanites. They've got to find a way to work this out, and the land can't sustain. You know, there's not enough room on this plot of land for the both of us. But Abram does an amazing thing. He says, look, you take your pick. You do what you want, and I'll respond in kind. You go one way, I'll go the other. You have your pick, and then I, I will respond by making something work. So that's the first reason. It was an unsustainable situation, and they had to divide their resources. The second reason is far more important, the sovereignty of God. Now, when I say the word sovereignty, what I mean specifically is this, that God ordains all things that come to pass in the universe, in your life, in human history. And that even our sin and even our bad choices, despite the fact that we make them again and again, are somehow, by the mystery and the wisdom of God, woven into the fabric of his plan for humanity. The sovereignty of God. The promise was for Abram and Abram's descendants. 
The promise had to do with Abram, not Lot. So when Lot leaves Canaan and forfeits any hope of inheriting that land himself and for his posterity, Lot kind of moves out of the picture and the focus now is particularly on Abram and Sarai. There are always threats to the promise as you read through Genesis. God makes a promise to Abram and to his descendants forever to bless all the earth through abram and his family and there's always a threat there's always a problem at first it was a famine so they had to go to egypt famine threatened the promise and then they were egypt and and pharaoh the possibility that pharaoh would murder abram and and abduct sarai that was that was also a threat to the promise and now they're back in canaan the threat is materially material abundance Lot being there is confusing the matter. So by Lot's departure, the storyline focuses more closely on Abram and Sarai. And the scene does conclude with God confirming that the promise is particularly for Abram. In verses 14 and 15, after Lot had moved on, God said, look at all this land. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see i will give to you and to your offspring forever so lot moves on to the south and to the east into the plains of the jordan valley toward sodom and gomorrah and the dead sea and abram stays in the highlands in the hills of canaan god's timeless truth god's unfading promises gave Abram the needed perspective that he had to have in order to respond to the conflict in a redeeming way. He's able to respond in a helpful, redemptive, restorative way because in the background of his mind was the true promise that God had already given it to him. So where he had forgotten the promises of God when he was down in Egypt... Back in Canaan, he begins to remember them again. And this precious insight is something that's going to help you face your conflicts. Thinking about it in the same way, God's timeless truth and his unfading promises give us the needed perspective to handle our difficult circumstances, relational or pragmatic, in a redemptive and healing way. Your response to conflict cannot exceed your trust in God's truth. If you're, going, if you're going to respond to conflict in a redemptive way, you have to trust that what God says is reliable. The Christian must remind herself, must remind himself continually of God's truth. The psalmist in Psalm 42, when he, was, when he was spiritually depressed, whatever the situation was, he reminded himself of exactly that. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? You ever feel that way when you're dealing with a difficult person? Or you're in a conflict dealing with a difficult situation? Why am I downcast, O my soul? Why is there so much turmoil? I can't sleep at night. When I have nothing to do, I go back to that conflict. I go back to thinking about that person. But the psalmist reminded himself, hope in God. 
for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 42, 11. When you become aware, when you are reminded of God's sovereignty, um, when you remember that even your biggest mistakes, the mistakes of other people, your own rebellious thoughts and actions, and the injustices of others placed upon you, that even those are beautifully and mysteriously woven into the plan of God. That nothing, that everything works for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. When you remember that, and you remember as well of his promises, his promises that that he will never leave you, he will never forsake you, that he will always forgive as we confess our sin to him, that he will end all all wrongs, that Jesus will return to bring justice and peace forever, that he will come to redeem you, your soul, your body. When you remember his promises as well as his sovereignty, and when you remember his love, when you remember that if you belong to God, there is nothing that can change that, that he loves you. It's not just that he created you, but he's personal, that he knows you intimately, that he loves you that he has adopted you as a daughter, that he has adopted you as a son. When you remember his love, when you remember his promises, when you remember that he is sovereign in all of our struggles, ah, now, now you are ready to respond to the conflict. Only now are you ready to respond to conflict. And comforted, Comforted by God's promise, Abram was free to negotiate with Lot. He was free to negotiate generously. He, he didn't just make a deal, but he was generous. Ken Sandy, uh, who was a lawyer uh, back in the 80s and 90s, I guess he's a recovering lawyer now. Just kidding, just kidding. Uh, Ken Sandy wrote a book called The Peacemaker because in his legal profession, he was trying to, along with other Christian uh, attorneys, was trying to, uh, to develop biblically-based ways of negotiating and problem-solving uh, with people without dragging one another to court, which is discouraging and destructive and expensive. If you can avoid court, Use biblical wisdom to do so. And Ken Sandy, in his book, The Peacemaker, he distinguishes between cooperative negotiation and competitive negotiation. We have The Peacemaker on the book table, I believe. I know we own at least a couple of copies. If they're not signed out, take a look on the book table. But uh, Ken Sandy compares cooperative versus competitive negotiation. What he says is competitive negotiation does not produce the best solutions. Of course not, because one lawyer represents you and his job is just to defend your desires and your wants and your rights. And the other lawyer works for the other person and that person is just defending that person's rights and desires and needs. And so you're not working together, you're fighting to see who's going to be, who's going to outwit the other person or who's going to be stubborn enough to hang on long enough to get what she wants. Ken Sandy says, uh, competitive negotiations do not produce the best solutions, and they're inefficient, of course, because they're really expensive and really stressful, and they take a long time. 
He also says that competitive negotiation damages personal relationships, don't they? Aren't our relationships damaged when we are fighting to dominate each other in our conflicts? But he says cooperative negotiation is really based on biblical wisdom. Think of Philippians chapter 2, where Paul said to the church in Philippi, I want you to be unified. And here's how you achieve unity, Paul wrote. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And thousands of years before, before Paul would write those words, you see Abram learning from his mistakes. The faithless Abram compared to the faithful Abram is traced right here in what Paul is saying. Don't make your decisions. Don't deal with your conflicts and threats selfishly, ambitiously, but sacrificially, generously, considering the needs of others before you consider your own needs. That's, according to Ken Sandy, what cooperative negotiation is. Let's not compete with one another now. Let's cooperate. Let's work together. And what Sandy does is he put together a list of principles. I don't normally like these things, but this one really works. I use it all the time. And so I'm going to share it with you. The word pause. So those of you who like to take notes, I want you to just write the word pause. P-A-U-S-E. It's an acronym. We have another, we, uh, Rick used the acronym JOY earlier with the children. Here's another acronym, PAUSE. And here's, here's what the letters represent. The P is for prepare. You're in a conflict with somebody, hold on, don't rush into anything. Pre- be prepared, pray. Pray and reflect. Reflect on yourself, on your feelings, on your thoughts and emotions. Reflect on how you've contributed to the problem. Ask God to convict you of any wrongdoing and wrong thinking in yourself. Get good counsel from others. And just in a preliminary way, consider what are your options. But prepare first. And the A, the A represents affirm. Affirm the relationship. Abram does this. He says, hey, we're kinsmen. We're brothers. We're we're family." Why are we fighting like this? We're family. Show a genuine, not fake, not people pick up on hypocrisy, a genuine concern and respect for the other person. What is it in the relationship that you can thank God for? What is something you have in common? What are the bridges between the two of you? Build on those bridges. Hey, we're family and... We shouldn't be fighting with one another. Surely there's a way we can work this out. I appreciate all that you have done for me. I appreciate the fact that through all our trials, you have stuck by me. So let's try and work this out together. The U stands for understand interests. This is so important. What does the other person think about the situation? What are the needs of the other person? What are the concerns and the fears and the limitations of the other person? You know your own. You know what you want. What does the other person want? Do you know? You may need to do some more listening to discover that. 
understand interest is crucial. I honestly, I screw up at this all the time, but I am constantly trying to fig to understand interest. This is key. The S, the S represents search for creative solutions. This is prayerful brainstorming. We find out in the book of Ephesians that God is able to do imaginably more than we ask or imagine. So what is God doing that we haven't yet thought about? What are the ideas and solutions of other people that we have yet not considered for ourselves? Search for creative solutions. What is possible by faith? What can God do? What have we not yet considered? And the E represents evaluate. Evaluate your options objectively and reasonably. Once you think through what the options are and what the possibilities are, you begin to be objective and reasonable about it. This means, this means you examine it together without arguing, without debating. You wrestle with it together, and sometimes it means you need objectivity. You may need somebody outside of the conflict to help you see the situation clearly. So these are just some principles that I have found indispensable in my own conflicts, whether they're personal between one individual or whether they're organizational, family to family, organization to organization. Now, you may be thinking, now, who in the world wants to do any of that when you're embroiled in a conflict and you're afraid you're going to lose something valuable to you? Who wants to do any of this stuff? Let me ask you another question, though. Why do you not want to do these things in a conflict? When you're offended, when you really feel you've lost something, why do we not want to do any of these things? Is it not because you are competing? You're competing for your own way. You're competing regardless of what you say and how you appear to want peace. Is it not that you are competing to have your own way? We do also have to consider Lot's response to the conflict. While Abram responded in faith, we see Lot responding by sight. Not what he knows, what he has heard God say, but what he sees on the ground. Lot didn't defer to his uncle. Lot didn't honor his elder by saying, no, you pick first and I, I, will, I will respect your choice and then, and then follow suit. No, Lot took advantage of his uncle's generosity and looked around and looked down towards the south and toward the east and saw that the Jordan Valley, unlike the plateau and the hills and the mountainous country of Canaan that, de that depended upon rainfall, talk about needing to live by faith with your, with your cattle, Lot saw that the Jordan Valley was lush. It was like the Nile of Egypt. It was like the Garden of Eden. And he saw the streams and the tributaries and thought, ah, that's where I want to be. And he saw the cities and the culture. He said, ah, that's where I want to go. And so he went. Now, this is interesting because you read in verse 13 these words. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. 
And earlier in the passage, there is a a parenthetical editorial comment in the account that says, now God had not yet destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. You, You ever watch a thriller movie that just makes your heart beat, you're, you're afraid of the next scene, and, and, yet, and you know where the monster is. The monster is behind that closet door. The monster is in that shack at the edge of the woods. And, and as the characters, you know, like one after another, they're dropping like flies, as the characters in the movie approach that closet door, approach that shack at the edge of the woods, you're screaming at the screen, you're going, no, no, don't go, don't go in that door, it's a trap. That's exactly what the author of Genesis is helping us do right now. Not, don't, Lot, don't move to Sodom. Of all places, it's a trap, Lot. Don't do it. It doesn't matter how wonderful it looks. Get away from Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how we're supposed to read this. You're supposed to cringe as Lot goes, ah, I'm going to go in that direction. Lot's shallow choice for convenience For prosperity, it led him and his family down an irreversible path that we will see in the coming chapters they would never recover from. As as, uh, J.K. Rowling says in one of her books, there is a difference between choosing what is easy and choosing what is right. And Lot chose what was easy. And we do this, my friends. Have you done this? Because we do this all the time. We choose what is easy instead of what is right. And we unwittingly, choice by choice, decision by decision, slowly, slowly through our lives, we separate ourselves from God's truth. One decision after another. That's easy. I'm going to do that. You know, I I know know, I'm not going to worship with God's people regularly because... I'm just so busy. My job needs me. My family, I I have to love my family and give them what they want. Our our schedules are so busy. And you make one decision. And now you're just one more step removed from reminders of who God is and what he's promised and who his people are who can support you. And then you make another decision and you take another step. And before you know it, it may take a year. It may take 20 years. You have isolated yourself. You have divorced yourself from the people of God and from the truth of God. James Boyce put it this way. He wrote, you may think that you are different from Lot. But if you have put your job ahead of your family's spiritual life, If you have put your social advancement ahead of a proper association with God's people, if you have let your choice of a home keep you from a church in which you can grow in faith and worship, you have moved from the highlands to the plains of Jordan. Now, Lot would have said, I am eager as you are to serve the Lord. After all, the cities of the plain need witness too. That was true. They did. But Lot's heart was not in witnessing. He was doing nothing for God. His heart was set on his possessions, sophistication, glamour. And for that, he lost everything. You cannot pursue peace and self-interest. But Abram's generosity, now look, Abram is going to fall again and again. Just, just don't hold your breath. 
just hang on long enough, and we're going to see Abram struggle again. But right here, we get a glimmer of hope that the word of God is getting through to his heart. And Abram's generosity here, it is just a distant foretaste of how God would one day respond to the conflict between you and him, between you and me, between humanity and its creator. Because when you think about Jesus here as a man who gave up his rights, Paul went on to say in Philippians chapter 2 that Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Let me stop for a second. You see that? Jesus was God and he gave up his rights. He didn't demand what was coming to him. He gave it up. And Paul went on to say that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness, in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it is because of his sacrificial generosity, not demanding his rights, but giving up his rights to give to you and I who had no rights a chance with God. Reconciliation with God. By doing this, Paul said to the, to the Philippians, that's why we worship Jesus. That's why Jesus has the greatest name in all the universe because he gave up his rights. And so we now worship a risen Jesus. Now in faith, you give up your rights. That is in a very simple way what growing and faith is, maybe you're not a Christian, you're wondering what is Christianity all about? Because sometimes I see religious people demanding that, that they have their rights in our culture, demanding that I act the way they act. Let me just tell you something. How you act is important to God. But the whole concept of being a Christian is walking with God as Abram was trying to learn how to walk with God. And walking with the God of the universe means giving up your rights like Jesus did and faith is being willing to trust that God's words will remain true even when you give up your rights and you learn by faith that you can't the things you give up they they can't revoke the promises of God when you give up your rights God is still sovereign God still loves you God's promises are still true nothing you give up can revoke any of that you notice that the things we can't keep are often the t things we tend to cling to and hoard. But the things, the things that we cannot lose, the things that are truly ours, we give away freely. Just like Abram, the things that we know belong to us, we just give it away freely. And now you're in a position to say, like the psalmist did in Psalm 16. We read this together this morning. The Lord, the Lord is my chosen portion. I don't have to hold on to these material things. I don't have to demand my rights. I don't have to get my way in this conflict. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. He holds my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The things God promises, I cannot lose. 
I go on in Psalm 16. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs you. Don't your conflicts go after you at night when you can't sleep? In the night also my heart instructs me, the psalmist said. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. And now, and now, in the peace of this knowledge, you can serve one another generously in your conflicts. Our conflicts can't undermine the truth of God. Our strife cannot undo the promises of God. So even when he may seem silent, his sovereignty protects his people. Even when his presence and wisdom and protection don't seem evident to you, his providence directs your steps. And directs the steps of everybody else involved. So trust in the Lord. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, give up your rights. And the things that God has generously given you, which you cannot lose, in freedom, you will generously give to others. And you will respond to your conflicts and your disagreements in a redemptive way. And when you don't, because I don't often, and you don't, maybe not as often as me, um, we have the blood of Christ, the great mediator who covers our sins. And we are one and we are reconciled in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for walking with us in all of our trials and in our disagreements and in our conflicts. We ask for a vision of your truth and your promises as Abram for that moment in his life saw clearly. May we by faith see your truth and your promises clearly and trust you that we may serve one another. In Christ's name, amen.